Welcome back to the Black and Real Life Podcast. It's your girl, Anuli, here with a new episode. If anyone knows about self-care for Black women, then it's this episode's guest. She literally wrote the book on it. Actually, she has published two books on the subject and has a third on the way. Needless to say, she knows what she's talking about. Oludara Adieo is a Los Angeles-based mental health therapist, author, and social media content creator who is passionate about encouraging people, especially Black women, to face every day with self-confidence and self-love. Her first series of books, published by Adams Media, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, share specific advice and activities designed to help Black women outwardly express their inner joy. Her accessible approach to writing and talking about mental health is influenced by her previous professional experience in the media industry as a writer and editor, where she works for popular publications such as Teen Vogue, Cosmopolitan, and Double XL. Her writing has also appeared in Women's Health and Wondermind. After a seven-year career in media, Oludara traded in the concrete streets of the Northeast for the sunny beaches of the West Coast to pursue a career in mental health in 2017. As a licensed clinical social worker, LSCW, Oludara has extensive experience with treating mood disorders, personality disorders, and thought disorders for diverse populations. She is currently working to establish her own private practice where she will specialize in helping people of color, especially Black women, manage their stressors, boost their self-confidence, and manifest their desires by releasing people-pleasing impulses. In this episode of Black and Real Life, Oludara and I talk about what it means to embrace being carefree her pivot from working in the media industry to pursuing a career in social work, and the power in moving away from your home base. As always, at the end of each interview, I will come back to share a few key takeaways that stood out to me from the conversation. These takeaways will be supplemented with research from both academic and non-academic sources to add further context to the subjects that are brought up in the interview portion. For every episode, I will include citations to the reference materials I mentioned, as well as some additional background reading for you on the Black and Real Life website. Visit www.blkirl.com to nerd out. Thank you for coming on Black and Real Life, Oludara. So many reasons I wanted to talk to you, and we'll get into a lot in a bit. Like, 
you do so many things. We'll jump into that as well. <laughs> but before we learn more about you, let's start from the roots. Where do you call home? Uh, right now, home, well, home is Los Angeles right now. Yes. Oh, right now. Sounds temporary. Um, I guess because I'm thinking of where the homes I was before, which was like New Jersey, mm. New York. So I think, yeah, home. I mean, I told someone recently, you know, I was like, yeah, I've been living here for six years. He's like, the person was like, so you are from Los Angeles, you live in Los Angeles. Like that's your home now. I'm like, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> that's also like a purposely broad question too, because like I live in Atlanta, but when someone asks me where my home is, I think Maryland. That's where I grew up. That's where my mama and my sister, wherever my mama is or where my sister is, like, you know, there's also a home in people. Mm-hmm. So that's my home. Who or what inspires you? Oh, wow. Who or what inspires me? That is a very broad question. I know. <laughs> Big questions. Um, I guess if for, for what inspires me for life, inspires me about work, inspires me. See, I don't like to lead in a question like that. I don't want to lead. So whatever comes to mind, what genre of your world you want to oh, think about? I mean, well, who inspires me? Beyonce, duh. Facts. <laughs> oh, <Okay. laughs> The queen always inspires. But I would say regular Black women. I would mm-hmm. say when I get online and I just see Black women thriving, and they don't have to be influencers, just, you know, people just living their lives and thriving and surviving. That inspires me just because just how hard the world is on Black women. Children inspire me, you know, because they're new to the world and they have lovely, fresh perspectives. And in, in the past, I've loved working with children for that reason, just because they just are always so fun and genuine and excited about everything um and because I feel like as you get older you get very like jaded by life so Mm. nothing is exciting becomes exciting whereas with children everything's exciting and new and fun my friends inspire me uh because I have a great circle of friends or just people in my life who are always accomplishing things like you uh you know it's just like uh yeah so I would say, yeah, that's what inspires me. You are the author of two books, right? Self-Care for Black Women and Affirmations for Black Women. And one of the first groups of people you said inspire you um, is Black women. So why is it important for you, Dara, to center Black women in your work? Um, I feel like it's important for me to center Black women in my work because one, I am a Black woman and I think it is ancestral healing for me to be able to do this work because, you know, I lost my mother about, yeah, about 10 years ago now. And so, and I have my own mother wounds and healings that needs to be done or is being done. And well, I want to help my community. I feel like the best thing I can do is center Black women in my work. And also it's just so, it's so safe to me. It just feels so safe in this world that feels so unsafe for Black women. Working with other Black women makes me feel safe and it it makes me feel happy to help them also 
find themselves and uh, help them on their wellness journeys and to also help them find safety in themselves. You've posted on social media that part of healing as a Black woman includes embracing and practicing being carefree. So I definitely want to talk about that. You've said, you know, you're currently in your carefree era. Can you mm-hmm. describe what that means? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's like, I said that? I'm carefree? Yeah, you said that. It's so crazy, though. Um, Before I answer the question, someone had posted something from my book, and I was like, oh, wow, that's, like, really good. Who wrote that? Not who wrote that. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, that was me. I think sometimes as a writer, sometimes you forget that, like, you write stuff that's very impactful Mm. because you're just on to the next, Um, especially when you work in publishing. It's like... I'm already working on the third thing. Yes, I believe part of healing as a Black woman is embracing being carefree because we are not allowed to be carefree. Even as children, you know, we know the studies and we know the examples that we've seen in the world that tell us that Black women, Black children, Black girls, and Black boys, Black girls are seen as adults. They're treated differently because their skin is adultified. Their skin is like demonized. So, and I can also have that, I've also had that experience as a child where it was like an adult was talking to me crazy and I didn't realize it until years later when I reflect on it, which, you know, it stuck with me. So it's like you, you aren't given the chance to just be joyous as a child and as a black girl and as a black woman. So I feel like when you finally begin to embrace being carefree, you're, you're instigating your healing. You're, you're beginning the ancestral healing because also like the women in our lineage for a lot of us weren't really allowed to be carefree. They always had to um, kind of just be taking care of someone, be taking mm-hmm. care of others, be busy, be working, be doing something. Um, and they weren't really just allowed to be joyous and carefree. And I I think about that, especially with like my mom and, and how I think about when I think about my mom and all I remember of her growing up is like, I don't really remember having a mom that was like, she had her carefree moments. She had her joyous moments like we all do, but I just remember her just always being stressed and emotionally, you know, upset and emotionally wound and um, worried about things. And when you try to embrace being carefree, you really let go of all that is holding you back and really embrace the healing and that you need. So that's where I'm at. And as a person who grew up being a perfectionist, and I feel like a lot of Black women have perfectionism in them because we're not allowed to make mistakes. And when you grow up thinking you can't make mistakes, you embrace trying to be perfect and as someone who grew up like the honor roll student that person who did all the activities did all the stuff you know tried to follow the line to get the correct career and so forth there's something liberating and and joyous about just kind of letting everything go and just deciding to just go with the flow of life for real and listen to what I want and do what I want and listen to my intuition and not care about what other people think and not allow stress to hold me, hold me back. So that could be especially hard because, you know, 
in case listeners don't know this, we're both Nigerian and I know within mm-hmm. our specific culture, there's this thing with the oldest daughters. I'm Igbo, right? So there's Ada. Ada mm-hmm. is usually the oldest daughter. And there's like the extra pressure on that. I was actually just listening to the audio book of a fictional co- book called Mame, which is Lord, a Ghanaian. Yeah, it's good. But, you know, the main character is Ghanaian and the word Mame means woman. But her mom's been calling her essentially woman as a, you know, pet name since she was a child. So she struggles with this thing of having to be the caretaker. This is no spoiler, but the caretaker for everyone, especially the adults in her life, since she was a child, because they've been calling her Mame, and she's like struggling with like who she is outside of that title, outside of her, you know, caregiven like family responsibilities. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Especially in Nigerian culture, there's such an extra, there's so much extra pressure put on the women of the family. It's a very patriarchal society. And especially I I was the only girl. So even if you're like the eldest or the only girl, the pressure is on you, even if you're the youngest like me. So it's, it's just a patriarchal culture that really calls women to kind of put themselves last and that's what I think about with like the women in my family and like my mom and her and my dad had a lovely relationship I mean they were together forever until she passed but I can definitely looking back I can see how the expectations of her marriage of her role in the family played into some of her suffering uh whether she wanted to admit it or not it's like I can see where the frustrations can be in your life, even though, you know, my dad is great and like absolutely lovely relationship they had. But when the society and the culture we grow up in tells us that women are expected to be the caretakers, they're expected to, uh, you know, hold all the responsibilities in the family, but yet they're still considered like the second citizens of the Mm -hmm. community it's like a mixed messaging, you know, it it makes you not value yourself. Yeah. So I definitely growing up, I definitely was like the emotional support animal in my family. And I feel like a lot of Nigerian women are like that. And we have to bear the weight of our family's name of our family's reputation. So going back to your previous question, it's like me letting go of that is like, is me being carefree because I'm saying like, I don't care like the expectations my family has of me. I don't care that the world wants me to save them. Mm. (laughs) No, I just don't care anymore. I'm trying to save me so I can be the best me and I can have the best life while I'm here on earth. But um, Mm. as, yeah, as a Nigerian, like it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Like the pressure you get, you, the internal pressure and then the external pressure. Uh, and that's a lot of stuff to work through. I'm wondering, because we, like, culturally, these phrases have become more popular, and which is great, but if we can put some texture onto, like, this carefree era and play a little association experience game with it, for Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. what does this era sound like? Mm -hmm. What does it sound like? 
Well, what do you mean by that? Like, what does it sound like? What is the soundtrack to the oh. carefree era? <laughs> yeah. Lots of nature sounds, lots of water sounds, lots of laughter, lots of dancing to music that is upbeat. You did say recently that twerking is ancestral here yes. online. <laughs> I keep up. <laughs> Yes, it definitely, I mean, twerking is ancestral, you know, mm-hmm. as we know, like us moving our hips is, um, it's just a dance move. And then, you know, it gets sexualized, but it really, it literally is, you know, like moving our hips has always just been part of our culture uh, in the African diaspora. And it's in Africa, I'm sure there are def- many different names for it. I don't know the actual term for it, but I know there are terms for moving our hips. Um, there are African communities that get in circles and the women just shake their hips and they dance. Yeah. And I it's a celebration. Yeah. 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 It's a celebration. It's uh there's a freedom in it. And I think you know, and then here in the United States, uh, it's the same thing, but obviously it's been sexualized and it's been seen as like purposefully for the male attention. And it's like, no, it's it's also um, somatic healing. So like somatic is like your body and and all the things related to it. So I feel like shaking your hips, if you can't express your feelings is a great way to let out those emotions. Mm. So um, it's why <laughs> when I made that TikTok, when I saw Megan shaking her hips, I was like, yes, it is ancestral healing because this woman just went through the most traumatic time in her life with the whole trial and the, the world being like, you were lying about being abused and having to, just having to go through that whole trial, that whole thing was just, oh my gosh, that whole thing just, every time I get on the internet mm-hmm. and there's a black woman who's been wronged, I'm just always like, this is why I do my work because I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm just reminded that like the world does not like black women. They, they want us to be the saviors, but then they also want us to be the scapegoats. They want us, they want to blame us for everything. And they want to also just, um, demonize us. And so, you know, when I see Megan the Stallion shaking her hips, she's like telling us she's free. She's happy. She's unbothered. She is letting go of all her stresses. And I feel like that is something that as black women, we need to embrace and do more of it. Um, because you know, you don't always have to talk and write out your feelings and stuff. Like go shake your hips. <laughs> I want to go to therapy with you and a whole thing. shake that ass. Shake that ass. <laughs> Let it out. <laughs> so you weren't always a therapist or in this field. You started your career in journalism before pivoting into social work. Can you talk about, I want to talk about the career pivot and where you were in your life when you decided you wanted to pivot your career. Yes. Um, it was 2016 when I decided I wanted to pivot. So I graduated from college 2011. And before that, I had like done internships at all these magazines, Teen Vogue, Seventeen, uh, Marie Claire. I really thought I would be like a fashion beauty journalist, but I ended up working at Cosmo, um, which let me not 
I mean, it's still like one of the biggest magazines in the world, but for me, there's so much trauma in that associated with it that I'm like, yeah, whatever. I worked at Cosmo, who cares? But it's still a big deal that <laughs> I worked at Cosmo. Um, it was a really big job. Got to meet a lot of celebrities. It was fun. I really thought I was going to have that job for a really long time. And then I, I actually always planned to pivot out of journalism. I thought I'd go to TV writing after journalism um, or some form of writing outside of magazines. When I decided to leave Cosmo after dealing with a bunch of like racist workplace stuff and then also my mom passing and then also thinking like, do I even want to do journalism? I was working at Double XL and I quickly realized I was just experiencing the same workplace trauma. Not, I wasn't experiencing racism at all. But it was just the the hustle and the bustle, which I feel like people can relate to in any workplace where it's like fast paced. Everything is like uh, an emergency. You're not good enough. You're not doing the best you can. Like the, the boss is always just berating you. There's always 10 million things to do and you're underpaid and you're working 12, 14 hour days, you know? And so I was just like, is this the life I want? Is this really worth it? Because in my back of my mind, I'm like, this will be worth it. Eventually I could go be an editor chief at a magazine or something or a website and I'll be making double six figures or whatever. I was just holding on to this belief that I would, I don't know, be an Anna Wintour. Um, even though I, even though I didn't necessarily want to be an Anna Wintour, I just thought it was a dream I had to have, uh, because I, uh, just because of what I was seeing in the industry, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I definitely need to pursue being an editor in chief when I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do that. So basically I was overworked. I was like, I was in a meeting. My boss was yelling at us as always. And I was just like, why am I sitting here being yelled at over some dumb shit? To be quite frank, I'm like, it's just a publication. Like this is not heart surgery. Why are we all so like wound up and acting like the world is going to end because of this? So I was just like, this is not the life I want. I don't have to be this stressed. So I need to figure out what I want to do. And I couldn't get any other journalism jobs for whatever reason. So I just, I just resigned without a plan. And um, I was just like, let me think about the last thing I enjoyed doing. And it was working with children. I went to be a preschool teacher for a bit because I was like, well, maybe I'll go back to school and get my teaching degree. I quickly realized teachers don't get paid enough. And also I don't want to be a teacher as I began to talk to the other teachers I was working with. And I had a great circle of friends who were kind of just talking to me about what I wanted to do. And I've always been interested in like the mental health field. And I've always wanted to do something with therapy. And so my friends were like, well, why don't you look into social work? I might be up your alley. And I knew a social worker, but she was in like foster care. And I was just like, that's not my ideal. And my friends were like, no, there are tons of options. And so basically, I think that just began my journey of listening to myself. Mm. I began to li really listen to myself and be like, okay, well, I basically said, fuck what your family thinks. Fuck what your friends think, the ones who aren't being supportive. <laughs> you know, just like fuck what society thinks. 
what do you want to do? Like for real, what do you want to do? And I really had to dig deep because on the outside, I know a lot of people were looking at me like, you just left a job at a magazine and you're working at a preschool. Like, what are you doing with your life? Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, on the outside, it looked like there was no plan. It looked like there was just, I was just making an impulsive decision, but I just knew internally, I was just like, I couldn't be working in media any longer, at least that way. I knew I couldn't work in media like that. I was just, I, I felt like it was um, a dead end. So what, what for me was like, I couldn't see a future. Like I really just couldn't envision a future, but as soon as I left and I began to look into social work and I applied to schools and I went to visit USC and I began to look at options, I began to have a vision of what my future could be. I began to see, oh, I could become a licensed therapist with my own practice and do more work and help more people. Oh, I could start my own business. Like I began to just see a very bigger vision for myself beyond what was going on in the magazines. And so I, that's how I knew I was on the right path. Cause I was just like, I'm having visions of just, or visions and feelings of just like, there's more than beyond my eyes with this path. And well, I was right. (laughs) I was right. I was right. It was like, I just kept listening to myself. I did my my journey of my self-care journey while I was living in California by myself, away from family and friends that I knew. It was like, I got to really learn about myself. I got to figure out what I like. I got to, I dated a little bit for a while. <laughs> Not so much anymore, but I don't, I like peace. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> So did you have to move to get that clarity? Um, I think so. Yes. I think I had to leave my regular environment because I was living at home with my dad. So I had to move away from my living with my dad. I had to be in an environment that I was forced to do it on my own in a sense. That really gave me the space and time to like, just like figure it out. And I think there's power in moving away from your home base. And by home base, I mean where you're raised, where you're very familiar with, because I think it, it forces you to get to know yourself and it forces you to tap into your resiliency in just simply figuring things out. Before I moved, one of my dearest friends, she was like, I love this for you because I think you're going to, you're going to learn yourself. You may discover that you like some things that you've never tried before. And she was right. Before moving from New Jersey to California, I was like, ew, hiking is so lame. I hate nature. It's so stupid. Now I'm in California and I'm like, you were branded as a nature girl. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, hiking is freaking awesome. (laughs) I love being outside, (laughs) you know? And it was just like, because I was just, I feel like I was just, I had so many fears and stuff from the east coast and i think also you can't heal in the same environment that you've been hurt so say that again (laughs) you can't heal in the same environment that you've been hurt so you know new jersey new york the east coast it really was just wrapped up in a lot of trauma for me um whether i knew it or not and i just had to get out of there and i was able to find myself in california 
And so that's why this just place really like feels like home. Um, and I think a lot of people need to do that to really discover themselves. So, right. So I did the social work school. It was uh, really intense. It's like therapy on steroids. Um, I graduate. I start working social work jobs. I work in Skid Row at a clinic. And then we get into the pandemic because I got that job 2019. We get into the pandemic. And at the top of 2021, I decide that I want to go back. I'm ready to go back into journalism or just media. I was like, I'm ready to start writing again because going through to therapy, because um, that was another thing. Once I moved to, the, to California, I started therapy. So going to therapy, it allowed me to really process my journalism trauma. It allowed me just to process life. And I was like, okay, well, I think I'm ready to kind of just like start writing again professionally. And I put that out there. I put the intentions out there. Again, one of my really great friends, she was like, just start a business where you edit people's work. Because my friends have always told me, they're like, you're a really great editor. And I was always just kind of like, I mean, I guess even though I was, I did it for like six, seven years. Obviously I had this skill, but to me, the skill was just like, oh, it's whatever. It's very easy for me to look at people's work and rip it apart and give them advice and go on about my day. Cause I did it for so long. And so then my friend was like, that is your low hanging fruit. If you want to make some side money, why don't you just set up shop and say, you'll start editing people's stuff. And I was just like, all right. Why not? Because I really would like look at people's stuff and just edit for free because it really didn't take any effort from me. And so I did that. I got on a listserv and I like began editing one person's book. She was doing a self-published thing. And in between doing that, Simon and Schuster reached out to me and I was just like, is this a joke? God, that's God. I was like, is this for real or is this a scam? And I think what happened is that at the top of 2021, I decided to just put myself out there again as like a writer, editor, blah, blah, blah. And they somehow found me and they were just like, they basically came to me with my first book idea. And they were just like, we have this idea for a book. We're just looking for the right writer and we think you're the right fit. And we just started talking about it. And then I came up with my concepts of how I would like to execute the book. And they were basically like, yeah, that's perfect. And honestly, it's been, it's been a great relationship ever since, because it's just like, they have an idea, they come to me, I'm either like, yes or no. And then I'm like, this is how I would do it. And they're, they basically just trust my voice that they're just always like, okay. Like, and that is so that has been such a learning curve for me because I am so used to so much pushback as a former journalist, because when you are a journalist, you're used to a lot of like weird pushback and weird editing. And I've just been through so much that I was just like, I, I didn't even believe I was a good writer. So like, I stopped believing I was a good writer just because of all the trauma I went through with like working at Cosmo as a writer. And so, and as an editor, so it was just kind of like, you know, working in publishing was healing because it was just like, they really were like, we, this is how you want this sentence to go. That's fine. Oh, you don't like the concepts we came up with for the cover in the book. That's fine. We'll, we'll figure it out. Like they've just support, support, like, 
Yeah, like I remember with my second book, Affirmations for Black Women, a journal, I was just like, they gave me the first concept with all the, the covers and the color scheme. And I like had an internal like met meltdown because I was just like, this is horrible. I don't like it. Like I was talking to my friends and they were like, so why don't you just tell them, <laughs> you know, because I was like, how do I tell them? Like, I, this looks like shit. Like it didn't look like shit, but it was just like, not what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was just like, this is not the color scheme I wanted. And basically after I like calmed down <laughs> talking to my friends, and they were like, yeah, just read, just tell them like, this is not how you, you want the book to look. And basically it was fine. I, they came back and it looked exactly how I wanted it to look. Mm. <laughs> so, but she had so much trauma from previous experiences. Yes. And she's like, can I even, can I even ask even in book two, this is like, yes. book two. Um, can I even ask? And so it's literally like every, every step of the way with the publishing and the in the book it's just like it's literally like they're just like okay whatever like you know mm -hmm. they're like okay that's what you want that's fine so that's been really nice it's been really nice to work with a team that basically just trusts me and trusts my writing because it's forced me to also just like trust me and trust my writing again because I've just been told or just made to feel so many times like I wasn't good enough and my writing wasn't good but it is. And I, and I think I just had to really believe that again. So yeah, that's how I am now. So, you know, now I'm an author, a therapist, um, and I guess, uh, influencer. Influencer who just went to Coachella on a trip sponsored by Urban Decay. What was that experience like? Wow. Um, so one, I am used to, I have been on brand trips before. When I worked in journalism 10 years ago, you know, I've done brand trips before, but not on this level, right? Like where I have to create content because 10 years ago, we were still figuring out what the concept of content was. Mm -hmm. And I was like working for a brand or I was working at a magazine where this is like for myself and I'm being paid because when you're a journalist and you go on brand trips, you're not paid it's like a business thing. So it's like, you're going to write an article. That's it's yeah. for work, right? So in a different way. Yeah. It's in, di in a different way. Whereas this is, is for work, but it's like helping build the brand and also helping me build my brand. It was fun. It was fun. I got to meet other creators. A lot of people associate Coachella, associate brand trips with like, I mean, let's be clear. Like we are both in our thirties. Mm -hmm. Did you did age anything play a role in your Coachella experience? Absolutely. Because one, I was tired. Okay. I was tired after day one because I'm like, you guys are out there all day and you do this for three days. Like I was, I was done after day one, but mm -hmm. I still have had obligations, right? Like I still had to show up to our, our team brunch and make content. I like, I had obligations. I had signed a contract. I was supposed to give them the um, four deliverables. Like I, mm -hmm. I couldn't just skip out on the rest of the weekend if I wanted to, right? Because I still had to provide the, the I still had to produce the product that they mm -hmm. had employed me for. So People forget <laughs> about that part. Produce. Yeah. Like yeah. I definitely woke up the second day, like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to do this, but that's because my body was hurting. <laughs> um, but it was still fun so it was fun Coachella is interesting it's a festival 
Um, everyone's nice. I didn't really have any like weird influencer in experiences. Like I didn't really interact with anyone who's weird. Everyone you interact with is generally nice. So I don't have a car right now in LA. And so they booked a car service. Whereas I think other influencers they invited, everyone else drove. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, yeah, I'm going to need a car. Um, you can ask for these things. I think yes, people don't you don't realize that they things. can ask for things. Mm-hmm. And I, but even on the whole trip, sometimes I was just like, why am I here? Like, I, yeah, I will say like, why? I, I, I honestly was just like, I just don't feel like I'm the right fit for this. This was my internal thoughts. Mm. I'm just like, this doesn't really make sense. Like, I don't really do beauty content, although 10 years ago, I did. I had a beauty blog 10 years ago, and I was, I did want to be a beauty editor at one point, but I'm like, it's not my kind of content I make, but the brand really likes me, and they like my TikTok, so they were like, we want, we want to work with you, and so it's just so interesting because I feel like, you know, if it was up to me, right, I would have been like, no, I'm not going to Coachella with you. Like, this is, I don't do Coachella. Like, that's tiring. Even if Bad Bunny is going to be there, like, I don't care, right? But- Wait, really? Really? Let's, let's <laughs> not. I'm no, sorry. No, no, that's a lie. You're like the Bad Bunny Bonnet Chronicles. I know, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's true. <laughs> right, I'm lying. <laughs> like, obviously, I would have, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I think because Bad Bunny was going to be there, like, that was part of why I was that invited. Was like a fit, yeah. Yeah, it was a fit. But also, I felt like I kind of represented the makeup girls who don't wear makeup every day mm. and also, like, love a natural look and don't necessarily, um, you know, do crazy eyeshadow, all those stuff. Like, which you know, I that's their whole brand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But the product we were promoting wasn't didn't have anything to do with that. It was like I was promoting their all-nighter setting spray. But like everyone else I went with, obviously they had their lovely eyeshadow and but like that's not me. I'm just like I love foundation, some blush, maybe some mascara, maybe some eyeliner, but I'm I'm part of the crew that's like we just like to keep it natural and that's that and we don't wear makeup all the time. But I feel like I represented those girls because right. it's like, we exist too. We love Urban Decay. We love beauty products too. We may not do crazy eye makeup all the time, but, or, or ever, but we still enjoy our makeup. Setting um, spray, you need it regardless. Yeah, and we need a setting spray just as much as the next person. I think it was a lot of like undoing of like, I'm not good enough to be a content creator. Um, because sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I posting these TikToks? <laughs> Why am I making this? With content? a half a milli reach, talking about, I don't know what I'm doing, but that's the imposter syndrome that you every time. I know. <laughs> I know. And I think it just, it just speaks to like, I'm like a lot of Black women, we go through stuff in workplace, we get traumatized mm-hmm. and we start off as like the, um, what is the, what's the concept when you're the black woman in the workplace where it's like, you start off as the favorite, then you become the threat. Oh, like the you know, pet? pet? From pet to, to threat. threat. Yes, yeah. pet so to threat. Since I've been through that um, and it, and it is traumatizing. And then 
when you become the threat and you're treated with so much animosity, whether mm. they do it intentionally or unintentional and unintentionally, it like stays with you so that when you're in these spaces that is work-like, you question like the validity of your place there. So I did have some of that, but overall it was a really great experience and I loved working with Urban Decay. They made it clear that they're like a brand that really just wants to work with whoever and whatever and like people who, well, people who fit their brand, but also like they're, they're kind of like for all mm. in a sense. And they brought content creators who have never been to Coachella before. That was the point of me being invited and also Bad Bunny, like we said. And yeah, I don't know. They just said they love my content and they love, they love me. So I was just like, okay. <laughs> you know what's so interesting about you and just like how you kind of just grew on TikTok, especially it's that like, your initial like TikToks like earlier on was like, I'm a black woman that's mm. learning Spanish through watching telenovelas. And you just grew this like Latin American fan base. But I just wonder as like a Nigerian American woman, mm-hmm. how is it like for your fan base, like the majority of your fan base, I would imagine to be none of those things, but they still rock with you. Like, I know. <laughs> how is that? It's so interesting because I feel like the ones who really follow me and like are like, I guess, fans and and strong followers, they're following me because there's something about me that they identify with. Maybe it's my, the interest of Bad Bunny, which it's been very interesting since Candlegate, as they're calling it on TikTok, Kendall Jenner. Oh, yes. Got you. Heard Um, about that. There's just been some controversy with him lately. And as a Black person, some things that were said in his Time Magazine article um, about I'm going to make him Black, actually, because (laughs) they brought him into the Kardashian fold. He's Black. He's a Black (laughs) man now. That's a Black (laughs) thing. You're right. You're right. right. Makes him Black. (laughs) Because he's been brought up. Yep. Mm-hmm. They only mess with a certain kind of men. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's a black but, thing. But recently, there's just the comment in the Times article was basically like he doesn't see color and like mm-hmm. he, I guess he doesn't experience colorism. He can't speak to it. Mm-hmm. So that rubs me the wrong way. And it makes me want to shift my content a bit because mm. it's like, I'm well, obviously I didn't build my whole platform on, on just Bad Bunny. No. That's not all I share, right? It's just no. that it was an interest of mine and I was just sharing content about it and I was building my community based on what the people who were following me were requesting. And I, that's my key to building a following. It's like, you got to build a community and then you can like, they buy into you and then you can branch out. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's very interesting that most of my followers, especially on TikTok, aren't Black people, but they're, you know, Afro-Latinos exist, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm still interacting with the African diaspora in a sense. And I do like to consider myself like a, an African diaspora ally so I'm an Afro-Latino ally so it's like my content is just me like being me 
And I feel like I just try to be an example of like what it's like to just live freely and, you know, and have all these interests that people may be like, what? <laughs> you know, like, why yeah. do you learn Spanish? Why do you like tall novellas? Why do you listen to Bad Bunny? You don't know what he's saying, you know? And just to be an example, it was just like, you just enjoy whatever you want. Like, who cares? And, um, and I feel like as Black people, we're often forced to be put into boxes. Like we can only have certain interests. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I just don't believe that we can have all interests. We can have interests in whatever we want. And yeah, but so I will say like having a large Latino following is interesting because my target audience is black women, <laughs> you know, yeah, that your books, are everything, the, yeah. everything. It's like, those are the people who I want to talk to directly, but it's also like my audience is whoever is attracted to my content. And, you know, maybe my, the people in my, in my following are also black women allies, you know? Um, so that's nice, but I will say I have interacted with people who I'm like, oh, you're trying to make me some kind of token. Or I've definitely interacted with people who leave, they'll leave like rude comments. And if I just like reply with the same energy, it's like, oh my God, you're so rude. Like, oh my God, I'm unfollowing you. Oh my God, like you're just so, uh. and it's like, yeah, because you already thought I was rude because I'm black. Like you already mm. had this idea that like, I act a certain way or I'm supposed to be a certain way. So um, yeah, and I feel like my real followers humanize me or are seeing me in how I want to be seen. But yeah, it is interesting. And sometimes I like, sometimes I do stress about it because I'm just like, I feel like my Instagram is very like black women. Like most of my followers are black women on right. Instagram. Whereas on TikTok, it is a mixture. So I used to be very worried about like, I don't want my message to get lost in the sauce to think for people to think that like I'm tap dancing for other, other cultures when that's not what it is. It's like, I'm just being me and I'm just sharing my interest and that's just it. But I feel like it's getting across. So hmm. when yeah. do you feel most like yourself? Ooh. when I'm at home in my bonnet <laughs> <laughs> with the camera on or off because you do uh, that a lot too. I know with the with it off um what did I feel most like myself um yeah when I'm at home just relaxing and watching something on tv phone phone away whatever I would say that like yeah right now that's when I feel most like myself because I am in like burn burnout recovery from my previous job, my previous full-time job. And a lot of my recovery is just like moving slow and being okay with that and not judging myself for moving slow. Mm. And yeah, yeah. I would say that's when I feel the most like myself just at home in my bonnet and robe. Do you think that it's possible to be truly healthy and whole under the conditions of the world that we live in? Mm. We're doing like the black girl nod right now. No <laughs> one can see us. We're just like, mm. I'm like, <laughs> head tilt uh, to the left. Uh, uh, <laughs> is it? Oh, big questions. I mean, today. it's a battle to get there. You know, she took her 
cup of tea to answer this question. She had to grab the mug for this one. I would, I would like to say it's possible as I'm trying to get there. And I feel like many of us are trying to get there, but we just live in a society with so many sick systems. So many of the systems that rule our world are so sick. Hmm. That is so hard to be truly healthy, you know? I mean, even just looking at the medical system, me as someone who is dealing with, um, I have PCOS. So I've been dealing with a lot of weight gain that can't be explained. And I mean, yes, I should probably do my part in working out more and eating slightly better. But at the rate I'm gaining my weight is not normal. And when I go to a doctor and I try to explain that, that I feel like this is connected to my hormonal issue, I want to see uh, endocrinologist or, or hormonal specialist. I met with, well, have you thought about getting gastric bypass? And it's like, I'm not overweight to the point where, um, which there's nothing wrong with gastric bypass, right? But like, mm-hmm. I'm not at the weight, I'm not at the point of where I'm so overweight that I like, I can't do anything about it. Like I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, I'm like trying to get help. And it's like, when you try to get help in the medical system, you're met with red tape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're met with people who don't even want to listen to you. Um, or make assumptions about you. Make assumptions. Like, and then another time when I talked to a gynecologist, and this is all when I was under uh, the insurance Kaiser Permanente. But when I went to the, the gynecologist there and I was just like, well, can I go? seen an endocrinologist and she basically denied it and didn't want to give me a referral but and I was telling her how I used to have an IUD and I took it out because I wanted to have regular periods because when you have an IUD you don't have your periods but um I wanted to have periods again and just my belief I do believe having a flow is okay and is healthy and so her response was well why would you do that like, you know, having your period increases the chances of getting ovarian cancer. And when you have the, I like just started fear mongering stuff towards me. So now, you know, you have a patient who's like, so I'm going to get cancer. Like, I just, I don't know. It's just, so, okay. So we're just, we just have so many unhealthy systems in this society that I don't know if it is. That's going to be a question mark for me. I don't know if it actually is possible, but I do think we can die trying, (laughs) you know, we can, yeah, we can, we can try. I think we, I think we should try to get as healthy as possible while living in this world. Even if we feel like it isn't possible, like you owe it to yourself that much to just Mm -hmm. at least try to live a really healthy life and not let the systems of the world make you feel fully discouraged and I feel like that's where I'm at what does freedom mean to you Mm, that's a good question freedom to me means I don't work for the man anymore but really I mean that's that would be lovely right and I'm working towards that being my own boss but in a sense, even when you are an entrepreneur, there is a man you're working for, Uncle yeah, Sam. Yeah, more bosses, technically, all <laughs> yes. your clients. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but I feel like ultimately freedom for me is just getting to do whatever I want and not feeling guilty about it. That part. Mm-hmm. 
Because even if you can do whatever you want, you have the guilt and you're not mm -hmm. truly free, are you? Exactly. Let's end this on a light, fun note with a rapid fire round. Are you down with that? Okay, when you're ready. I'm going to ask you just a series of questions. That's just the answer. I'm just going to go through them. What is your astrological big three? Your sun sign, your moon sign, your rising. Absolutely. Sun is Aquarius. Moon is Leo. Rising is Pisces. Are you an extrovert, introvert, or ambivert? I am an outgoing introvert. What color have you been drawn to lately? Ooh, currently, after the last couple weeks, it's the color stone. It's like a sand okay. stone. I know you thought I was going to say pink. <laughs> right, or yellow. <laughs> yeah, pink or yellow, right? Because those usually are my colors. But lately, I've been drawn to the calming peacefulness of the color stone. What do you collect? Ooh, I collect. Oh my God, that's a really good question. <laughs> Looking around. <laughs> I know, I'm literally like, I, I was like, do I, I collect, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw you a curveball. I collect internet friends. Okay. Because I meet people online like you, like we it's met. It's true, we did meet online. <laughs> like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm really good at making friends online and collecting them like Pokemon. <laughs> All right. What are you reading? Ooh, nothing, honestly. And that I should always preface it that it doesn't have to be a book. I think people associate reading with only books. Okay. But it okay. can be anything. I will say I am, so I'm not reading any books, but I want to be, and I'm working towards that. But I would feel like I am reading uh tiktok <laughs> there's a lot of things to read on tiktok mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i learn a lot on tiktok yep. what are you watching i guess it's similar Ooh, okay right now as i heal from burnout lately i've noticed i was a bit anxious so i'm re-watching psych oh i love that i love a good rewatch. like a lot yes. everyone's watching snowfall i know the finale came out I, and that's great i want to watch it one day i'm, I'm not in the space yes to watch it i am personally Same watching this old show from the 70s called that's my mama which was the show that clifton powell did before he was on amen this is like <laughs> interesting not a major show but i'm enjoying it it's on tubi <laughs> love it that's love it i want to watch snowfall but I realized when I was watching it, I was like, oh God, this, this stuff is making me anxious. Mm -hmm. And I would like want to watch the next episode. And I was like, if I can't watch, I need to watch it all in one sitting because yeah. I can't yeah. just, I couldn't wait every week to find out what was going to happen next. Cause I was like on edge. Um, so I can't wait. I can't wait to watch it all. What are you listening to? So I'm going to see Rao Alejandro next week. So I will say he is at the top of the music I am listening to. Um, he is Rosalia's boyfriend. Um, oh, okay. um, Thank you for the so. clarification. Yeah. <laughs> In case you didn't know, he's, he's, he has his tour called Saturno. Um, so I'm going to see him next week with my friend. But I mainly listen to like meditation music. So like there's this playlist on Spotify called Flute Meditation. Okay, looking that up. And it's been honestly awesome. It's very peaceful different types of flutes, native, ind indigenous people flutes. Um, yeah, it's been really nice. Do you have any favorite apps? 
Um, obviously, I would say TikTok, but um, I'm approaching May. Well, we're recording this in April. So um, in May, I plan to do, I decided I'm going to do an annual like social media break. So May. Oh, great, great. Yeah. So May is going to be my social media break. But How does that work? Do you tell them ahead of time or you just dip? I love to just Irish exit. Okay, I love yeah. to just dip and be quiet about it. But I think because now I have a bigger following, I might need to just be like, okay, guys, I'm taking a month off. Bye. Like, you know, <laughs> um, but I will say, you know what? My favorite app is Spotify because mm-hmm. I love listening to music. Favorite website? Am I on my phone or am I on my computer? That's a hard one because it's I been know. a month. It's been a while, right? It's been a while since we go on websites. Like we click. I don't think I have a favorite website. Fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. This is a little curveball question. Well, who is someone that more people should be following on social media? Ooh. Um, I was going to say you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's if at Anuli was here. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> but if you're here, then you must be following her. And if you're not, well. What are you doing? What you are you should. doing? That is a good question who should people be following you can start with yourself yes okay. oh yeah it's okay to say yourself follow me on uh, tiki talkie um what's your handle uh, my handle is oludara d-o-o-l-u-d-a-r-a-a-d-e-e-y-o on all platforms i'm mainly active on tiktok um i'm trying to be more active on instagram but i don't i don't like instagram it's not giving, it's not it's giving, not giving. you know what it is it's one, too many people who know you in real life or used to know you yes. in real life are or there. think they know you in real life. <laughs> or think they know you, right? So it's it's always like, you're not my audience anymore. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> and then talk since high school. Leave me alone. Exactly. <laughs> and then two, it's like making reels is difficult. I think like anytime I go to post on Instagram, I'm like, why is this so labor because it freezes when you just yes. make a reel real it, like there's no intuitive concept to how to do things on there so i just i hate it so <laughs> literally rubbing her temples <laughs> yeah i'm just i don't like it um i love oh you know what i would do have someone people should follow so I follow this girl called Mecca on TikTok. We are mutuals, which means we follow each other. And she's also on Twitter too. I think her handles are Mecca Valley. I think that's it. I need to check. Wait, no, I think on Twitter, she's pray to Mecca, which is M-E-C-C-A, pray. And then the number two, M-E-C-C-A. And then on TikTok, I think she's just Mecca Valley. I'll include in the show notes. I love following her because what is she 26 or 27? I forget what she just turned. Uh, she's had her birthday. I love her because, you know, she's a black girl from California who's living in Houston and she just is unapologetically herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I am such a fan of people online who are unapologetically themselves. It's like my favorite thing ever. Um, because I just believe like we should all just not be afraid to be ourselves online and not put up a, a facade, you know, cause there are many influencers and people online who are out there who put on a facade. And, um, and even though there is a bit of performative part of social media, it's there, but with her, it's just like, she talks about all her life. She, so like, I feel like to her followers, 
she's probably like big cousin but to me she's like little cousin because I'm Mm. older than her so I love watching her like just evolve um and she always just has like really funny takes (laughs) so and like really honest and funny takes and I love it that's the end of our time together thank you so much for just being here and sharing your life and your world with us thank you for having me At the top of our conversation, Oludara shared that she is inspired by everyday, regular Black women just living their lives. That sentiment inspired me to reflect today on the work of Zora Neale Hurston. Born in 1891, Zora Neale Hurston was a novelist, folklorist, dramatist, ethnographer, and cultural anthropologist who dedicated much of her life to chronicling the everyday, regular lives of Black people. One of the reasons that Hurston came to mind for me for this episode is that I am currently reading a book called You Don't Know Us Negroes. It is a collection of published and previously unpublished essays that Hurston wrote over the course of nearly 40 years before she died in 1960. What I most appreciate about Hurston is her approach to writing about Black people, which is one that I hope to follow as I write my own doctoral dissertation. The collection of essays was edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Genevieve West. They explain in the book's introduction that rather than using literature to deflect the right gaze, Hurston maintained that the purpose of the Black writer was to allow the Black experience to speak in its own voice, in all of its sublime resonance, good and bad, positive and negative. Hurston was critical of works and writers that presented two-dimensional static representations of Black people that either demeaned or exoticized Black people. It was her goal, as it is my own goal, to share the richness and complexity of Black life. As she writes in the book's titular essay, Negro reality is a hundred times more imaginative and entertaining than anything that has ever been hatched up over a typewriter. And I should also let you know that in the same excerpt, she later goes on to tell writers and editors who are interested in publishing works about Negro subjects too, and I quote, go hard or go home. Let me tell you, Zora Neale Hurston was the epitome of a carefree Black woman with a wit and a sense of humor that just wouldn't quit. As a Black cultural anthropologist myself, who is also interested in chronicling the everyday regular lives of Black people, Hurston will forever be an inspiration to me. I have more sticky tabs in the book than I have fingers and toes, and I'm only halfway through. Her essays are just too good. I'm hooting, I'm hollering, while also very deeply considering her points and her perspective. If you are interested in learning more about the life and legacy of Zora Neale Hurston, then I recommend listening to season three, episode seven of the Zora's Daughters podcast titled, We Call Her Zora. The Zora's Daughters podcast 
was produced and hosted by my good friends and anthropology colleagues, Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes, who are both nearing the end of their own PhD journeys. You can find a link to the episode under references on the webpage of this episode on the Black and Real Life website. I want to conclude my takeaways for this episode by talking about the pets to threats concept that Oludara mentions slightly after the halfway mark of our conversation, since it may be a concept that some listeners may be unfamiliar with. Pet to threat was a concept that was coined by Dr. Keisha Thomas in 2013, based on her study titled, Moving from Pets to Threat, Narratives of Professional Black Women. Through this study, Thomas and her colleagues discovered that Black women were often encouraged and supported early on in their careers by mentors and professors, many of whom were often white. However, once they began to feel confident and improve their work, they were often met with hostility simply because of the fact that they were becoming better at what they were doing. Another article that I recommend that everyone reads and that highlights similar themes is an article written by my dear friend, L'Oreal Thompson-Payton for Fortune, about Black women and the glass cliff. The article outlines the disproportionate pressure that Black women are put under when hired in leadership roles. The idea of the glass cliff in this context is that when Black women are promoted into leadership positions during times of crisis, they are often given the sometimes impossible task of fixing an organization's broken culture. Similarly to the pets to threat concept, the glass cliff concept requires that Black women meet nearly impossible codes of conduct and ever-shifting expectations. As Oludara shares at various points in our conversation, the requirement to meet nearly impossible codes of conduct and ever-shifting expectations can be detrimental to a person's self-concept and negatively affect their quality of life. Being a carefree person is not about being careless. It's about being careful or discerning about the environments you put yourself in the people you interact with, and the content you consume because all of these things can impact how you think and feel about yourself and the paths you choose to take in life. I've been in the years-long process of stepping into my own carefree era. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not always as carefree or confident as I may come across. As Erica Badu says, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. For the past few years, I've kept two quotations as reminders on the background screen on my cell phone. One is by Audrey Lord, and the other is by Toni Morrison. I'll end by sharing them with you now. Audrey Lord once said, If I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Toni Morrison once said, If you want to fly, you got to give up the shit that weighs you down. I am a newly Akinabin, and you have just listened to an episode of the Black in Real Life podcast. The program today was produced, edited, and hosted by a newly Akinabu, with additional support from a newly Many thanks to Garth, whose song Wild 
serves as the official theme song of the Black in Real Life podcast. Season three mashes up wild with the song, If I Ruled the World, Imagine That, by Nas, featuring Miss Lauren Hill. For all things Black in Real Life, visit www.blkirl.com. And remember, as always, the people you follow online are also Black in real life.